Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy, and equality. So today it presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national, and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Morning, Jacob. Good morning, Lolly. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Welcome to Green Left Radio, everyone, and good morning to all listeners. Um, we've got a pre-packed program again today. We've got three interviews and lots of news. Morning, Dennis. There's a man rushing in. He uh, is late. <laughs> I just wait, just wait a few seconds. Sorry about that. One minute, and then you are forgiven. That's okay. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, we've got a, a fairly packed program today. And um, we, we shall start with some news from Green Left Weekly. So are you guys ready to run? Oh, well, we can um, start with a news story, well, a very sort of major kind of news story. I'm pretty sure it hasn't been put in Green Left Weekly, but it go, we'll go seg into another Green Left That's Weekly okay. article. Um, many have probably heard that um, the PNG government has declared that Manus Island to be illegal and uh, yeah. coined on the Australian Not government. Man- the, the detention camps in Manus Island to be legal. Oh, yeah, the detention camps <laughs> in Manus Island to be, to be shut down. And because Yay! it's illegal. Um, however, I was on the way here. I did read a lot of the kind of politicians' kind of response, like Peter Dutton on The Guardian. And basically, Peter Dutton's response is that we're going to try and send those refugees to Nauru, which is absolutely right. shameful. Right. Because that, that's totally worked in the past, hasn't it? Yes, it has. <sighs> it's, I mean, Nauru and Manus has worked in the past. Now they're going to shift one lot to the other lot because this one have declared it you know, illegal to have detainees at high court. I think it's a high court in, in um, Manus. Is it? No, get the hell out of here. So yep. basically, it's basically trying to transport, uh, transport the most vulnerable people on earth between the different points in the archipelago of camps. And it's an absolute shame. I feel so ashamed that this country is doing this. You know, I want to. I feel violent, but I shouldn't yeah. do this. I guess. I guess. In, I guess the exciting thing in in response, um, refugee activists have organised rallies all over the country. Um, there'll be some actually happening today in Sydney, um, Perth, um, Adelaide. Um, but for as well. but for Melbourne, it will be happening tomorrow at 1 p.m. at the Melbourne State Library with the sure. clear demand of bring those refugees in, bring them here will bring be the hashtag. Yep. Yep. And um, now, as I was saying, this um, kind of segs into a... Um, but right now, what's sort of actually happening on other detention centres outside Manus Island is on Nauru, well, it will be past its 34th day, but this is what the article says. Nauru, um, there's um, been a protest um, happening on Nauru. It started at, on March 20th, the same day as the Palm Sunday arch, over... 144 asylum seekers, including children, are protesting against their detention in the Nauru Regional Processing Centre. Mm. 
and it's um, still ongoing and um, needs as much solidarity as, uh, and support as it can. And um, attending maybe the, uh, the refugee rally today will be, um, oh, not today, um, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Will be, will be a good tomorrow way is at 1 o'clock support. at the State Library, yes? Yes. Call in Melbourne. Do we know what, what the ALP has said to this whole schmozzle? Well, actually, there's been a bit of a break in ranks over the whole, uh, over this uh, particular incident. Yeah, I think Sounds good. I think there's actually been the, well, at the moment, at the moment, uh, at the moment uh, it's not a, uh, of a large scale, but from what I, from what I heard, there's actually three la- three federal Labour MPs have, bro- have basically broken ranks. ALP or Liberal? ALP. Okay. We've got to be clear. <laughs> yes, ALP. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're a bit indistinguishable I can't really imagine, really imagine the coalition breaking, breaking ranks on anything, really. You never know, Dennis. <laughs> You're going to help. Anyway, anyway the, 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 the three um, uh, federal labor, uh, labor MPs having broken ranks over the, over the issue of the uh, treatment of, regi- of refugees in the detention uh, centers. So we'll see if that develops into any particular active resistance campaign with, within, the, within, within the party itself. But from, the, from, our, uh, from what we've seen over the years, unfortunately, there has not been a lot of progress in the, the, the left faction of the Labour Party yes. ever, 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 ever being able to change or significantly alter the policy um, of, uh, of, the, of the party as a whole. Question of refugees. Oh, we'll wait and see. But I think people have to move. If the politicians don't move, the people have got to move. I hope mm-hmm. as many people as possible out there who are listening can get friends together and get the state library tomorrow at twelve or one o'clock. That's uh, one p.m. One p.m. So you know it's it's a well-known gathering point for people who want to protest state library. So let's go, people. It's really, really important. This is a human rights issue. In fact, there was this, this young man, they refused to show on TV the other day, it was so gory, who tried to immolate himself in front of the sure. UNHCR visitors to Manus, and he's in a dire state, um, you know, in, in the hospital, and they, he's being flown into Australia for treatment. And this is how desperate these people are. Add to the torture and the fear and whatever else they would have gone through from where they came from. This is how we treat the vulnerable people in our country. Um, I, it just makes me really angry when I, when I talk about it. Anyway, let's move on to other news, guys. So, in terms of other news... Who's got a paper? Let's go. <laughs> Jacob has the paper this time around. Yeah. Okay, well... Oh, well, actually, actually, sort of um, uh, in, the early, in the earlier programs, we mentioned um, oh, we mentioned uh, a few of our comrades who have been uh, who are, who are well, attempting attempting to change the political the, the political um, climate within uh, within Parliament with this within, within Parliament with this upcoming federal election, and one of them has now written an article, and that's that would be Chris Jenkins, who is running for. The, uh, who is the Socialist Alliance candidate for the seat of Fremantle in Western Australia. Good. And sort Good. Of, uh, w- w- and what, what he writes here is, I live and work as a nurse in Fremantle, and I'm the, and I'm the candidate for the seat of Fremantle in this year's federal election. Socialist Alliance recognises that not only has corrupt business-as-usual politics caused a deepening social and climate crisis, but that those entrenched and greedy interests are unwilling and incapable of providing real solutions, and major, major system change is needed. And only, um, in particular, I think, um, 
we should uh, we should notice some of the emphasis he puts on the less uh, on the issues like fo- less fought for by the other parties. In particular, we need to end the horrendous violence inflicted on women by ensuring economic independence through equal pay, properly funded women's health services, and refuges, and making housing for all a right. As well as the, as well as we need to meet needs of our community. We need high quality social services like free education and health care. We need an integrated renewable energy system while rapidly phasing out fossil fuels. We need comprehensive public transport infrastructure to break the dependence on private vehicles. And he just, he just wraps up his, uh, well, his, his, his candidate uh, statement, so to speak. People elected to public office are often on salaries and pensions well, well above that of the average number of the community. The disgraced Brandon Bishop is now taking home more than 9,000 a fortnight yes. in pension paid for by us. This is what, and this is the kind of things we need to end. It's, it's absolutely, you know, blood-boiling uh, information. Yes, it? It's yes, just indeed. horrible. But there's another really interesting development in New South Wales where Ken Canning, who's a Senate candidate mm. for Social Alliance, although he's not a member, he is a member of the Aboriginal community. That's right. And uh, in a week, in the last week, um, he has spoken to more than 3,500 people. There's amazing, amazing um, rallying of um, uh, issues that he's talking about. And, and interesting, he was talking at a Greek, I think it was a Coptic church, yes. and the priest there, um, he was saying that, if Ken Canning is a communist because he stands up for the poor people, then I'm a communist. And I thought, oh, my God, no. where's that coming from? That's pretty awesome. <laughs> that, uh, that is, that's the sort of impact um, alternative politics can create, um, as opposed to the same, you know, twiddle twiddledum stuff, labor, liberal, mm-hmm. you know, they're much of a match. They can replace one for the other and not make a huge difference. Because if you look at the refugee issue we were talking about before, labor started it. You know, started this, this outsourcing um, refugees to neighboring countries. Mm. So, way to difference. There is not much difference. Well, people need to think. Make one last point. Um, yeah, I read that Bill Shorten has been sort of critical, um, has been criticizing, you know, the government's kind of handling of Manus Island. And it's like, exactly. your government is the one that opened it to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What else have we got in, um, in the paper, guys? Oh, well, plenty of things. Plenty of things. Yep. The <coughs> underground coal uh, gasification banned in Queensland. Good. Here we, go. Here we have an article by uh, Kerry Smith. The Queensland Natural, no, Queensland Natural Resources and Mines Minister Anthony Linham announced on April 18th that the government has banned underground local gasification, or UCG, in the state, arguing the environmental risks outweigh the economic benefits. So the, he said the ban, which would apply immediately as government policy, would be legislated by the end of the year. So uh, we discuss we discuss the problem of coal seam gas lots, uh, coal seam gas and and fracking yeah. lot. But UCG is not one that gets mentioned. Uh, What's UCG? Basically, it's underground coal gasification. Uh, it basically it involves converting coal to a synthesized gas by burning it underground. Oh. Sounds vicious. And disgusting. They're, they're, they're creating little volcanoes underneath, aren't they? 
Oh, yeah, you could. You could <laughs> I get to I'm getting the picture in my head, you know, this is the oh. conjuring of the. Oh, I feel like, no, I feel like I'm basically creating a controlled fire in the mind. Sounds awful. But then maybe uh, this, this, this in, in conjunction with the fact that they've already given Adani the approval to start the yes. open, it's, yes. it's open cart, mine he started. Cut, it's open cut, and mine. then we've got this one. Yes. What well, a great, no, they're gonna, they're gonna. Well, this one, well, the thing is, uh, <sighs> the, well, uh, the syngas is actually processed on the surface to create products such as aviation fuels and this, synthetic diesel so well, good thing is it has been banned <laughs> that's good I'm so glad to hear that so that's good, good to hear that it's been banned I'm so pleased to hear that yes, at least yes. one type of uh, destruction of the environment is being banned uh, Locked Gate Alliance has also been quite happy about that yes so I'm sure I said they told the state government these technologies should be banned six years ago it's no brainer and burning <laughs> coal underground and shale oil are a bad idea sounds good to <laughs> me now yes. let's um, go on to uh, an interview that we have lined up. This is with the Australian Conservation Foundation and its relation to... The Great Barrier Reef. The Great Barrier Reef and it's in con- it sort of links in with what you're saying, Dennis. So we have Shani on the phone from the ACF. Good morning, Shani. Actually, from Greenpeace. Sorry, Greenpeace. Yes. <laughs> he confused me. <laughs> this young man confused me. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I was going to correct um, her to say that she was from Greenpeace. But yeah. I wrote it down for him and he still gave me the wrong information. But anyway, that's my fault. I shouldn't have given the piece of paper. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you. Okay, now, we were just talking about Queensland. Tell us what's happening with the reef because we know we've heard lots of different bits of news about what is going on with the reef, the coral bleaching at 93%. Um, fill us in. What's going on? Yeah, it's, it's really bad news for the reef at the moment. I mean, as you say, 93% of the reef has been impacted by bleaching. Um, and in the northern section of the reef, um, up past Cairns, past Cooktown, the area that's you know furthest away from human touch and human impacts so far, so it's been the most pristine part of the reef, is, is the area that's suffering the worst. So... Um, you know, there's, there's been some really sad images coming through, um, and, and lots of new scientists about how, how this is, you know, the worst that, that's ever been seen. You're sounding a bit soft, Shani. You want to get closer to the phone or something? Sorry, is that better? That's better, yeah. Thank you. Yep. So, given that um, the Adani mines have been approved in Queensland, tell us a little bit more about what you have been able to ascertain. The, the, the potential disruption is, that's, going, that's going to create a barrier reef, or is there any conjunction? Yeah, so I mean, the Adani mine, the Carmichael mine, um, and the expansion of the Abbott Point terminal for that mine are going to have, you know, really immediate impacts on the Great Barrier Reef, as well as, as longer term ones that will last, you know, well beyond when they stop mining coal if they go ahead. So, they're talking about dredging the seafloor, so basically digging up um, an area of, of the seafloor in the World Heritage Area to allow for more ships to come through. Um, so, you know, that's, that's pretty destructive when you're, when you're digging a big hole, basically, in the habitat of things like turtles and dugongs and dolphins and it's an area that whales pass through. So, um, you know, it's, it, it is an area that's important for the reef. There's there's mango area, there's wetland area right next to it, which is also really important, which is you know, going to be put at risk by the expansion of the coal port right there. So there's going to be immediate impacts. Um, there'll be immediate impacts from, from all ships. They're talking about, you know, 560 ships 
uh, uh, coming each year to Abbot Point just for the this expansion of the terminal for Carmichael Coal. So, you know, when you have more ships, you have more risk that they're going to animals, that they'll hit the reef. And on top of that, you have the, you know, this coal, of course, is going to be burnt. Um, so, so then you get the double effect of the climate impact um, from that. And, and we're seeing those hit the roof right now already. But the, the taste of what's to come, if we, if we have the mind to go ahead and if we continue you know, down the path that we're on at the moment. Hmm. We've got a bad line there, actually. So with with the sort of um, policy the government's taken, I'm just wondering what sort of actions Greenpeace has been implementing to counter this. I know there's lots of you know, things happening here in Melbourne and, and probably in Sydney, but what's happening in Queensland, which is going to be the direct point where the destruction is happening? Mm. So, I mean, there's, um, you know, what, what we've been, been working on as Greenpeace is, is recognising that the governments have given these, the mine and the port expansion the approval. Um, we've been fighting them to not, to not give those approvals, but they have. But we've been focusing on the fact that they still need somewhere in the realm of, you know, US $16 billion to build this project. <laughs> My um, goodness. So that's, that's a lot of money. Um, it's a lot of money when the coal price is so low. I know. I, I don't understand the logic of, of what they're doing. You know, the coal price is going down and, and, and the market's going up and down, up and down. The prices keep dropping. And they still want to mine coal. I just don't get the economic logic of all this. Well, yeah. well that's it. And, and there's, you know, there's banks and there's financial institutions who are, who are right there with you and saying this doesn't make sense. Um, so, you know, we've had 12 international and two Australian banks saying we're not going to put our money uh, behind this project. So, so how, how, who's, who's supporting Adani if, if, if the banks are not going to... Uh, initially, when, when the, when the uh, Adani company applied for approval, the banks um, actually withdrew and they didn't want to support it. And for some reason, the government seemed to have approved it and this, some of the banks are still not putting money into it. I, I'm not sure of the details of this. What actually happened there? Do you know any better? If, the, if there's any, um, if there's anyone who is supporting it financially. Yeah, because the, the, the government's supporting it, yes. Well, they they haven't ruled out providing government finance. Um, taxpayer money. Components mm. of, the, of the project. Yeah, that's it. Taxpayer money for the project. But at the moment, you know. They, they don't have the money, basically, so there is nobody who's getting behind it, um, getting behind the Carmichael project or the, or the Abbott Point expansion with, in, in terms of, you know, actually putting money on the table. So, um, that's, that's the good news of all this so far is that they might have, have had the government do what they want, but they still haven't been able, um, they still haven't been able to get banks or financial institutions or other governments to put, to put money into the project. Mm. At, any, at one point, um, I remember reading the um, Home Minister, the Foreign Minister of India, was saying that there's no guarantee that um, the, the coal mine from this project in Queensland will be bought by India as well. So there was there was no 
promise of any local market in India for this mine. And there wasn't exactly a, a big need around the world either. So it, it all sounds really bodgy. I, I, don't, I can't get a handle on this, this whole thing that's going on. I mean, what is the politics behind it is what I don't understand. I understand the AOP thinks it's going to create jobs. Um, uh, at the risk of um, destroying so much of the environment. There's no money in it. It just seems like a puzzle to me. I wonder if you know anything, any more of this, this pieces of the puzzle that is not being told to the public. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you're right. As a project, it's one that, that really doesn't back up. Um, you know, the, the market's not there for a they don't necessarily have the buyers. We've seen the Indian government saying, you know, they want to decrease um, the imports of coal into India. They want, right. they want to be more self-sufficient um, mm. in their for their energy needs. And so, um, yeah, you're you're spot on when when you're saying it's a bit of a puzzle as to why they're they're continuing to push push this through and why why governments are continuing to back it. Hmm. Okay, so we've got the, the mines that are, are potential, potentially destructive to the barrier reef. We've got ships coming. There's another uh, potential destruction to the reef. What else is going on that um, is endangering this, this supposedly uh, one of the seven wonders of the world? Yeah, well, well I mean, the other factor there is, is just the climate impact. So all of this coal um, will be burnt, regardless of where it um, and and then we see two two impacts on the reef um, from from increased temperatures from climate change. And one is ocean acidification, and the other um, is warming waters leading to coral bleaching, which is what we're seeing mm. right now. Mm. And it's one other thing that that's been going on for many many years now is the effluent from from the the farmers who use chemicals in their farm, the chemical-based farming where you, you have fertilizers and whatever else they use to do farming in, in, in Queensland washes off into the sea. And this has had a long-term impact on the lives of, of um, you know, marine life in the reef. And that I, I knew because I, I, I read something somewhere, uh, you know, saying that this was, this was happening in the long term. And that is not being curtailed either. Would that be right? Yeah, there have been, there've been various... You know, efforts and initiatives by by all sorts of governments um, and and non-government organisations to try and address the runoff problem. Um, because you're right, it is a, it's been a long-term uh, long-term issue affecting water quality um, on the reef, especially you know in the more populated areas of Queensland. So um, we've we've seen you know Greg Hunt, the Stephen Queensland Environment Minister. Um, really focus on it and say that this is the the problem that they're going to deal with basically and they've put some more funding uh, into into systems and, and management practices um, to improve water quality based on runoff but you know what we're hearing from the experts on that is that it needs a lot more money than than they're providing um, and on the other hand they're also using it to to sort of you know avoid dealing with the long-term problems um, that the reef is facing due to climate change. So yeah, we've seen that. them really focus yeah, on, on water quality um, at, and, and not apply the same sort of you know, scrutiny and funding and approach to, to climate practice as well.
Okay, let's let's go on to what are the campaigns that Greenpeace is um, conducting in relation to preserving this or at least trying to stop this, if not reverse the impact. Yeah, certainly. So we've, um, you know, as, as said, we've been working really hard to make sure that the the Carmichael mine and the Abbott Point expansion doesn't go ahead, and we're continuing to make sure that that the project doesn't get the money that it needs. Um, that that finances don't pop up and say, you know, we'll we'll put the money in here. Um, and so, you know, our, our campaign in the last year, along with a, a lot of other groups, has been really successful on that front. Um, and and we're we're feeling confident that we'll continue uh, to make sure that that nobody puts money into that project. Um, and I mean, the other thing we're doing is starting to to talk about, you know, how as Australia we can be going coal free um, and how we can start shifting and, and away from, from this industry that's causing a lot of damage and a lot of harm to some of the places that we love um, and how our governments and our politicians can participate in other things. Mm, you're dying off there. You need to stay on the phone. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, and how can, how, can, how can listeners help with your campaigns, the key point? Well, I mean, at the moment, I think... Um, if, if they jump online and, and have a look at what's going on, I think with the, with the coal bleaching that's going on at the moment, you know, one of the most, um, important things is making sure that our politicians know that people all across the country really care about what's happening on the roof and hold them accountable, um, for their actions. So, I mean, I'd, I'd really encourage listeners to, to have a look, have a read about, about what's been happening, um, what the scientists are telling us what's happening on the roof and getting in touch with their local members of parliament and, and saying how concerned they are about it. Um, and then, of course, you can always, you know, sign the petition on our website about going coal free um, and making sure that, you know, we've got tens and hundreds of thousands of Australians who are, who are backing, um, backing that call. Mm. And um, any specific recommendations given that there's this unofficial election campaign going on? <laughs> Sorry, say that again? I said any recommendations to listeners given that there's an unofficial election campaign going on? <laughs> uh, look, we've got two parties that both really need to uh, to list their game, basically. Um, you know, we saw a climate announcement from, from Labor which uh, didn't deal with, with coal export. Of course. Um, so, yeah, I think... I think having conversations uh, in this period is really important with with candidates and politicians. Okay. Thank you very much for being available this morning, Shani. It's early in the morning, and uh, that's very kind of you. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Okay. Bye. That was Shani from um, Greenpeace, yes. <laughs> not ACM, <laughs> the organization, right? Okay, let's go to a little break, and then we will come back to more news. You are listening to Greenleaf Radio on the Friday morning breakfast show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital, and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Greenleft Radio is brought to you by the Greenleft Weekly Newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Greenleft Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues.
And if you have just tuned in, you are listening to Friday Breakfast and the Green Left Weekly Radio. And we have Dennis, Jacob, Lalita at the studio running this program. So, more news, fellas. Yes, on the, uh, sort of switching now to the international arena. Over in Brazil, in uh, face of the attempt by the country's right, uh, right, parliamentary right wing and the media and the oligarchy and any other fascists who wants to, res- who has, who wants to uh, overthrow uh, President Dilma and, re- and restore the, the military dictatorship uh, in the country. The social movements have, uh, have been mobilizing to reject the coup, the coup vote and have been taking, uh, taking to the streets. Um, so um, this, uh, to, uh, the uh, popular Brazil Front and People Without Fear Front have been formed in response to the recent writing mobilizations against Rousseff. At the same time, they remain critical. At the same time, it's important to, to note, they remain critical of government's austerity uh, me- uh, measures. And between them, they unite many of Brazil's largest social movements, including United, uh, Unified Workers Central, the Landless Rural Workers Movement, the Homeless Workers Movement, and the National Students Union, among them. They released a statement recently, which has been, uh, rep- uh, which has been reprinted in uh, links. I'm, I'm just going to read out some of the uh, more some of the important highlights uh, here. This April 17th, a date in which we remember the massacre of. Eldorado dos Caracas, when landless peasants were killed by police in 1996, will once again enter into history of the Brazilian nation as a day of shame. And yes. This is because a circumstantial majority of Chamber of Deputies stained by corruption dared to authorize the fraudulent impeachment of a president of the republic who has not been accused of committing any crime of, of responsibility. Conservative and reactionary economic and political forces that have promoted this, this farce hope to wipe out the labor and social rights of the Brazilian people. Uh, they do so with the help of a coup-plotting media in which Rede Globo plays a central role in a dissemination of coup-plotting ideological propaganda and through their coverage of a judicial police operation that is aimed at attacking certain parties and leaders but not others. This is why the popular Brazil Front and People Without Fear Front call on workers from the countryside and the city and on democratic and progressive forces, jurists, lawyers, artists and religious figures to not leave the streets and continue to fight against the coup through all forms of mobilization inside and outside the country. Yeah, there seems to be this right-wing move against uh, any left-wingers in, in Latin America. We'll see what's happening the, in we, Venezuela. We, we tell, no, we've seen, we've seen resurgence. We've certainly seen the resurgence of the right-wing um, in the last couple in the last couple of years. Yes, that's, that's, it's been a, uh, for a few reasons. Sort of one one is that quite a few of the of the I'd say the original pink-tied left left leaders either retiring or oh. dying of natural causes, as happened in Venezuela, or, or being poisoned, or being poisoned, <laughs> uh, or uh, or basically not being able to run for another uh, for another term. Another term. Yeah. One, oh, that, that's one side. The second side is actually being, uh, unfortunately, in cases like in countries like Brazil, that the the governments that was originally regarded progressive, well, say center left or not quite radical, now actually turning now uh, sort of increasingly turning to austerity and neoliberalism and yes. 
sort of really, really moving, uh, losing support of the social movements. Well, uh, austerity always does, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I think it's important to note that even though um, the, the Marusev's government is being targeted by the, you know, by the conservative, uh, conservative and the oligarchy and uh, and the right wing, the Rusev's government itself has has been responsible for quite a few policies against the poor hmm. in the country in the last uh, couple of years. So in so the uh, one example I said sort of a lot of austerity measures in terms of like uh, cutting spending on uh, ed- health, education and transport, the usual uh, tra- stuff. transport yes. uh, everything like that. At the same time it's important to note that despite all these uh, despite all these mishaps the uh, uh, the Russian government remains the only legitimate, the only legitimate, actually legitimate um, political power in the, uh, or I should say, elected hmm. power in the in the country. Yeah. And any attempt to actually any attempt to overthrow, overthrow her or get rid of her with our elections is a coup plot. Yes, and it, sounds. It is, and it, it is, it is a coup. Takes me back to the Allende days in Chile. Yes, yes. Just disgraceful. Yes, Anyone indeed. use and guys, Jacob? Any yeah, well, Sorry, yes, indeed. Well. Actually, on Ecuador, on Ecuador, it's been, I think, uh, it's been, it's been important to um, highlight that if you haven't seen, for, the, for those who haven't heard, Ecuador has been last, last week. Ecuador has been hit by a series of earthquakes, yes. which have yes. resulted <laughs> in over 600 deaths, uh, th- tens of thousands of injured, as well as three billion dollars. In damages, overall uh, uh, as a result, and well, uh, just the one heartening or the one positive um, uh, outcome of all this has been the enormous show of solidarity yes. that the country has received from right across the world. I'm just going to I'm just going to read a particular episode. Sure. Palestine sends 19 rescuers, and <gasps> US sends nobody. Palestine has sent nine, actually out of those 19 rescues, 13 are doctors. Wow. So Palestine has sent rescues in Ecuador in aftermath of the South American country's devastating earthquake. Palestine is the only country outside of Europe and Latin America that has sent rescue experts to Ecuador. Latin America far surpasses any region in sending humanitarian aid and rescue experts to Ecuador. For earthquake relief, with Venezuela sending almost a third of all rescue specialists. Mm. Ecuadorian President Rafael Correa said on April that South America, South America should have its own Secretary of Natural Disasters, since no one, no one, can, no one country has enough resources to mobilize in such large-scale emergencies. Mm. Ecuador is one of the smallest countries in the, in the continent, with a population barely above 16 million. It could only send 18 trained uh, rescuers to affected areas compared to, um, uh, to oh, compared to Venezuela's uh, 212. So. Is that amazing? And also, and also Cuba is also, uh, uh, was one of the first first one to join in. Of course, always yeah. that. Cuba is always there in the yeah. front, forefront, isn't it? It's important to note that there were, uh, be- even before the earthquake happened, there was already six, 600 doctors yeah. who were on the ground in, e- in Ecuador as yep. part of the sort of the medical missions uh, yep. there. But it has, but it has ad- additionally it has sent, um, I think it was like 100 extra rescue personnel and doctors. It's amazing. On top of that. And I think, I think sort of on the note of Ecuadorian earthquake, this is just a quick announcement I wanted to make. The Ecuadorian community in Australia has actually been uh, has been fundraising uh, a, a, crowd, a crowdfunding a campaign to help rebuild the country and provide all the like necessities for the um, for the people over there. 
So it's called the Australia for Ecuador or hashtag Aus for Ecuador. So the um, if you want to contact those guys, so get in touch with them. They have the Facebook page. What's uh, it called? Australia for Ecuador. Ecuador okay. Uh, and, or go to Australia for Ecuador at gmail dot com, and there you can uh, make donations. Make, make, yeah. uh, make, make donation or yeah. help to spread the word about other countries to recover, because the Australian government certainly doesn't seem to have done anything. Oh no, they're too busy stashing money in Panama. No, or, or, or you know, <laughs> imprisoning refugees. That's right. Belting people up, you yeah. know, putting mm. putting Aboriginal people in in, in cottage. They're very busy. Sorry, <laughs> that's a problem. Jacob, anything? Oh, yeah, so going um other stories of, like, you know, other recent stories of struggle internationally, um, in, in Pakistan, um, there was a gathering um, of thousands of pe- um, peasants in the Okara district of Punjab to mark International Peasants' Day on April um, 17th. This protest, you know, went ahead despite the fact there was a violent sort of crackdown by the police, the parliamentaries and the army. The gathering was organised by the Tenants' Association of Punjab and supported by the Awami Workers' Party. It's kind of like the, some of the initial demands of, of this sort of um, banned kind of April 17th rally include the release of four local AMP activists already in jail. The government, you know, to repress these kind of protests used, you know, anti-terrorist laws, which are, you know, routinely used to squash dissent but are rarely used against, you know, actual terrorists. To, of course. You know, Such a, a bogeyman, isn't it? The peasants' um, mobilisations and violent responses from the authorities continued after the International Peasants' Day's rally. At least two peasants have been killed by state forces. Quoting um, Tariq, um, he, it seems there are no laws, law enforcing agents functioning in Okara, but gangsters roaming around and picking up anyone who's associated with AMP, a, a genuine poor peasants' organisation struggling for land rights. Um, you know, the Pakistan media also mostly kind of ignored these protests. Um, the journalists who have covered them have also kind of been, you know, targeted by authorities. The local, a local journalist, Laziv Hassan, I'm pronouncing it, Razar, has been investigated under anti-terror laws. Police attempted to arrest him on April 19th, but he was not home when they raided his house, so they arrested two of his uncles instead. You know, just for a kind of bit of sort of history, um, you know, many probably don't even know about the AMP. Since, you know, July 2000, the AMP has organised peasants to resist, um, you know, the unlawful new leasing arrangement designed to impoverish them and force them from the land. The peasants have won a degree of, you know, from hard struggle. The peasants have won a degree of control over their land and water, but the struggle for, you know, having a legal title continues. In this past year, as as I sort of noted before, the military has increased its use of violence and anti-terror laws to reverse these gains of these peasants. Um, the Okara military farm struggle has been notable for the unity between Muslims and Christian peasants and a high degree of participation of women. In this kind of concluding quote, the peasants are not terrorists. They are victims of state terrorism. They have lost at least 11 comrades in the struggle. The real issue that the army wants to take back the land from the peasants and we will not let that happen to Iraq. Tariq said, addressing the International Peasants' Day rally. Mm. So interesting. You, you only hear of Pakistan in the main media when America is negotiating something to do with the Taliban or, or to do with ISIS. You never hear the real issues, the political issues that are happening in, in Pakistan. You never hear about the workers. You never hear about the working conditions. You never hear about the poverty and, and how people are managing. You know, you know, there's so many things you don't hear about. Whereas the only news here is where America's involved. It's just like, you know, oh, yes, God, you know, if, if you are here, we'll talk about this place where you're just tapping your 14 or you're concerned about, we will ignore everything else in the country. 
Why are they negotiating with a country that is so cruel to their workers and their people? You know, it's, it's questions, a lot of questions. <laughs> and there's always this um, sort of talk about why we should be scared of ice. Of course, ISIS are clearly a very... Um, they're horrible. They're, they're a terrorist group. They they're are terrorist. Ter- no they one's are saying they're not. Yeah, except... Um, Australia voluntarily kind of like does trading with with say Saudi so, Arabia. Saudi Arabia, exactly, which is basic, which is basically the uh, legitimized version of ISIS. Hmm, so, that's right. So, yeah. you know, who <laughs> gives them gives them arms? Where do they get their the arms from? Yes. You know, who sells arms Saudi Arabia? Who then then arms mm-hmm. ISIS? They don't talk about all these sort of relevant things, important things. Um, they only talk about the nice things, or what mm-hmm. they see as nice things, protecting the citizens. Who, what citizens? It's all the citizens of America, and the rest can go to hell. You know, it, it's that racist, xenophobic attitude that, that's portrayed by the media by only covering the, the Western nation's importance and ignoring anybody else. It, it, it's frustrating. That's why I think Green Leopard is really good in terms of covering all these issues. Now, we've got time for one more bit of news before we go on to the next interview, guys. Yes, uh, it's curious, um, a curious article here from, uh, from Kerry Smith once again. It's the abolition of road safety tribunal makes roads uh, less safe. It's been <clears throat> the uh, federal government has succeeded in scrapping the road safety remuneration, remuneration tribunal. That's the legislation that was meant to abolish the tribunal passed the Senate without Labour and Green support on April 18th. The RS, uh, RSRT uh, was established by, Julia, by Gil Gowan back in 2012 with the task of promoting safety in the road transport industry, primarily through pay. And it was created after the National Transport Commission found in 2008 that there was a link between driver remuneration and safety for truck drivers. So... Short, yeah. in short, okay. In in other words, in other words, this was um, this was actually meant to ensure that tr- the truckies were getting paid uh, a wage according to the amount of fatigue that they endure yep. during all the all the long haul uh, trips. And the transport, and understandably, understandably, the transport workers union uh, has not been very happy about this decision of of, sc- of scrapping it. So, uh, uh, Michael Michael Ayer from um, uh, the TWU has been in New South, the Secret- New South Wales Secretary of the Transport Workers Union, Michael Aid, has been uh, said, when truck drivers are not paid a safe rate, they are left with no choice but to skip on uh, maintenance, speed and drive while fatigue or risk not being able to keep a roof over their family's heads. The Prime Minister has put winning bo- uh, votes in, uh, in an election on July 2nd ahead of safety on our roads. And this is as low as you can get. Yes. So this is... also said that the Turnbull has deliberately ignored the link between pay rates for all truck drivers and safety in our roads and has been proven over decades of research by independent academics, corners and parliamentary inquiries. It is transport workers and everyone who shares the roads with them who will suffer from this decision. Yeah, so the safety is absolutely being put at risk here, isn't it? And, and they, they're talking about these truckies who they saw short on TV, uh, line of yeah. trucks lined up, as if they're all owner-drivers. They're not all owner-drivers, no, are no, they? No, of course not. They actually employ other yeah. people to drive those trucks. And so many, like, so many of the truckies are actually employed by big companies like Toll, especially. Uh, especially, uh, especially. 
Uh, that is Fox and lots of different exactly. companies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they they are being dishonest in the way they portray that issue. It's it's mm-hmm. a real safety, and this is an opportunity they've taken to union bash. They've been bashing the TWU. Oh, they yes. want more members, and of course, course Shorten comes into it. This is ex-union, or he was, yeah. he was the, the yeah, chief. Actually, actually, he doesn't come in, into it at all. Ah. Oh. Okay. He, he's kept his nose clean, has he? Okay. Yeah. All right. Time for the next interview, guys. We have Anjum, who's actually from Kashmir, and this is an issue that we rarely hear about. So let's get mm-hmm. to, go on to Anjum. Good morning, Anjum. Morning, Lalita. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good, good. Good to have you on, on 3CR. Um, Thank you. So tell us, what, what is this um, group that you've organized? And we heard you had, you had held a vigil um, in support of people who have been tortured or treated badly in Kashmir. Right. Um, I guess uh, it, would, it would be better to give a bit of a brief, uh, background on, on the issue first. Before yep. we come to the visual. Well, probably uh, most people uh, don't even know the history of Kashmir, but... That's right. Yep. That's right. Uh, well, the story goes back to British India when India was, um, India was uh, set free by the Brits. Uh, they divided India into two areas, India and Pakistan. And there were some, some areas which were called the princely states, uh, the fate of which were not decided. There were about four such states where uh, it was decided at the time that they would be given a, self, uh, a right to self-determination f- uh, future into the future. Uh, since then, all three states, uh, three of the four states, were given that right, and they agreed and they expressed their their uh, wish to become part of India, and they have become part of India since then. Kashmir uh, is one of those uh, outstanding issues, which is also on the uh, UN's agenda since 1948. Uh, that has not been resolved. Uh, it's, it's, quite, uh, it's true that both Pakistan and India are to be blamed for keeping this wound uh, festering and not seeking a resolution to it, uh, be it because of political reasons or whatever. The bottom line is um, it's the Kashmiris who are suffering uh, in the middle. Uh, The resistance movement has been going on in Kashmir since 1947, Mm. uh, and it has had its highs and lows. Uh, Sometimes there was uh, armed intervention by Pakistan, which uh, obviously did not help the cause, uh, as one would have expected. Um, In most recent times, it started about 20 years ago, 25 years ago in 1990s, early 1990s, uh, when the Kashmiris uh, decided, okay, enough is enough, uh, they took up arms um, and uh, tried to uh, basically, um, you know, seek their right uh, to a free Kashmir. Yes, it's, it's the independence of the country that's vital in the minds of the Kashmiris at the moment, given that India and Pakistan cannot really get their act together and work out what their positions are except wanting to grab land grab really isn't it in a, in a sense that's 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 how the Kashmir that's exactly how the Kashmiris feel mm. it's it's, uh, it's a it's a land grab by both Pakistan and India uh, without any any uh, due respect and regard for the locals over there yes and uh, uh, admittedly there are some Kashmiris who would like to join 
uh, India, and there are some Kashmiris who would like to join uh, for Kashmir to be <laughs> that, part of Pakistan. That's right, yes. Uh, but uh, my opinion and my understanding is that the majority of the Kashmiris would like to be left alone, and we would like to have our own independent state. Sounds good. Um, which, you know, which, which, which is quite feasible. Yes. Uh, the issue right now is that we have, uh, in, the, in this part of Kashmir, uh, sorry, uh, I forgot to tell you that Kashmir is currently divided into three parts. Hmm. The total, total area of Kashmir is 222,000 um, square kilometers, plus minus a few thousand, uh, out of which about 75, 77,000 square meter, kilometers are under Pakistan control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's about 30, 30 to 40,000 uh, square kilometers under Chinese control, mm. which no, who no one talks about. That's right. They only the talk about Tibet, Tibet, don't they? Tibet, yeah, yeah. The rest is known as uh, uh, Indian administered Kashmir, uh, also popularly known as Jammu and Kashmir. Yes. Uh, yes. And the the issue right now is in Jammu and Kashmir, where uh, which is probably uh, the world's most uh, militarized zone in the world at the moment. That's right, yeah. Uh, yeah. With, yeah. with approximately a rough estimate, there's one one uh, Indian military, paramilitary uh, trooper, uh, uh, you know, in, in Kashmir for every 15 Kashmiris. Mm. So that's, that's, that's pretty high. Yep. Uh, we have yep. uh, most of the civilian population is uh, militarized in terms of there are uh, military bunkers uh, amongst the civilian population, uh, and that's that's one of the form of subjugation and intimidation. And coming straight fast forward, straight to the issue of the uh, of uh, recent times, where uh, in a in a part of Kashmir called Handwara, there was this uh, this schoolgirl coming back from school, uh, uh, and she probably wanted to use the and the uh, facilities, the abolition facilities. Uh, in the in the town, uh, which is quite near, very uh, near a military bunker. Uh, now, from here, it is all unclear what happened and what's not, what's true and what's not true. The allegations were, the allegations are that the the military trooper uh, tried to molest uh, this 16-year-old girl. Uh, as a result of which, the locals uh, uh, who resented it. Uh, uh, started the protest, and uh, uh, as the protest got got a bit worse, uh, the military fired uh, live bullets, and uh, basically uh, that firing was to kill. Uh, they were um, the shooting took place in the uh, aiming at the upper parts of the body and the head. Uh, normally, if you shoot to disperse, you would uh, you would do it at ground level so that or in the air so that yeah. people are not yeah. really hit. Mm. But no, in this particular instance, as every other instance, every time, the troops fired on the protesters uh, with an intention to kill by shooting them in the head and the upper parts of the body. Then a curfew was imposed in the area, and uh, all communications were suspended. Yeah. So yeah. now what happened after that or what happened during that time then come straight under the Indian com- communication control. Uh, so no news gets out. And whatever comes out is rumors and, uh, and the Indian, uh, you know, propaganda machinery view of the, of the situation. Of course. The, the, uh, the 
main issue with, with having uh, military personnel situated within the uh, civilian population is, firstly, it's intimidatory as it is. Uh, and they, they are um, covered by a, a special uh, act of parliament called the Indian Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which gives them immunity from all prosecution. So they're a law unto themselves. Uh, whatever they do, whatever they uh, uh, feel like doing, there is no accountability there, right? Uh, yeah. In in and uh, you know on face value, uh, the military will always say that uh, no, we have our own laws and we are uh, subject to a strict discipline and so on and so forth. And I would say for most part of uh, the military within India, that may be true. Uh, but when it comes to uh, disturbed areas and areas where we have these insurgencies happening. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's not always true. Mm. Uh, and we have had so many incidents in Kashmir where uh, there has been uh, mass rape of women, mm. where the military was was uh, was uh, indicted. But uh, again, no 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 action at all. No oh, no no. The, so everybody's still busy trying to you know get. Uh, so what we have is uh, on 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 the 22nd of April. Yep. We had a vigil yes. uh, just to educate the people uh, as to uh, the, uh, the issue and uh, what the whole, um, you know, that particular incident and, and the issue of Kashmir in general. Okay. So this is this is sort of news that the mainstream media doesn't cover. We are so glad that you were able to come on board and, and let us know what's happening. And I assume I, I believe that you've set up a group um, to keep this uh, issue uh, you know, you know, attended to an ongoing manner. So do you want to give some details of, of what sort of group you've set up and how people contact or can support this group? Uh, well, actually, we, we don't have a formal group per se. Uh, it is a Facebook page. If you just use the hashtag Bleeding Kashmir, you will, you'll be able to pick up the, the uh, you know, people who are, who are engaged in it. The, the um, main aim is to get the, the free thinkers, the conscientious people of the world, uh, without organizing them into a, uh, what do you call it, a formal group, yeah. getting them thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this movement, uh, this vigil actually started with some youth in, in, in the States yeah. uh, who had this idea. And the bottom line is that, you know, uh, the fact remains that uh, Pakistan wants, uh, sorry, the, the Kashmiris want the international community to intervene. And how do we engage them? is by uh, using the media, right, uh, by spreading the message. The thing is, uh, while uh, armed insurgency at times has its own, own um, function, but at the end of the day, uh, war has never helped uh, anyone, and war True. has never delivered on any, any good. So, mm. so tell, me, now, t- tell me, Anjum, um, there's one other issue you haven't touched on, because um, this, is, this is a, seems to be the case across the world, religion being used, especially by Pakistan, um, claiming that majority of Kashmiris are Muslims, therefore they should be part of Pakistan. And, and if you give us a brief um, outline of what your response is, then we can uh, wind up the interview. Right. Uh, well, uh, while the majority of the uh, people of Kashmir may be Muslims, but the, uh, the fact remains that it's not a huge majority. Mm-hmm. It's about 68% of the people are Muslims, yeah. um, and, and about 26, 27% are Hindus, 
We have about 1% Sikhs. We have some Buddhists. We have some Christians. Uh, so from, from that point of view, uh, that that argument really, really uh, doesn't gel in today's world. Mm. That uh, we are Muslims, hence we become part of Pakistan. Yes. Uh, if that were the case, then the whole world on one side and the other, world, you know, then there are one billion people who are Muslims in the world. Yes. I mean, they have their own single country. No. Mm. It's the cultural aspirations of the people. It's the people of Kashmir who mm. represent a particular particular ethnic uh, group. Yep. Uh, who do not align with either Indians or Pakistanis for that matter. Yep. Uh, we are a totally different uh, different ethnic group. Yep. So now, that uh, argument doesn't gel. Good. I'm glad to explain that. Now, uh, finally, give us that Facebook name. It's Bleeding Kashmir, you said, yes? Yeah, it's Bleeding Kashmir. Okay. Thank you so much, Anjum. That's very informative. Yep. We have not had any news item on Kashmir for decades, I think, in, in any public uh, media. So it's so good to be in touch with you, and we'll, we'll keep in touch with you as your campaign develops. And if anything happens, we'll certainly be in touch with you. Thank you very much, Lalita. Thanks, Thanks Anjum. Bye. Thank you. Okay. No, time for the... If a, Anyone who's just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, of course. And um, this is Green Left Radio and Friday Breakfast. We go on to another quick break and then um, we will um, go to a, a little bit more news before the next interview. We are going to go to announcements next. All right. So um, in terms of future, um, future events, um, the housing occupation that is being happening in Bendigo Street, Collingwood, ha- is still happening. So, um, which is good. Um, which is very good. So um, it's still welcoming any visitors or any supporters to come down. So come down any time for that. It's still, um, um, this Friday and on that issue, Jacob, we're going to have an interview with uh, a professor um, from Swinburne on the issue of youth homelessness as well. So at 8.15, that's what we'll be doing. Yep. Yep. It's an important issue. Um, now, this um, today, um, a, listeners of the previous program uh, might remember that we did an interview with um, Hobson's Bay Refugee Network and West Welcome Wagon. Yes, yes. Um, they'll be doing their f- um, film screening, um, The Man... No, Infinity. Infinity, an Infinity. amazing movie. Yes. It's really... Um, they'll be doing it tonight at the, the Sun at the Sun Theatre in Yarville, and it'll be a fundraiser to support refugees and asylum seekers living in Melbourne's western suburbs. Tomorrow, there'll be um, the rally, um, Manus is Illegal, now bring them here, here in light of the you know, the new, um, the Supreme Court decision by Papua New Guinea, which has ruled that the Australian-run detention centre is illegal and constitutional. Um, protesters will be gathering at the State Library at 1pm to say, to say, bring them in, we do no more mandatory detention. Mm-hmm. Um, on Sunday at Trades Hall, um, it'll be quite a special day for workers. It'll be the May, May Day. <laughs> the May Day March will be uh, at the corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Streets and Carlton South at um, Trades Hall, and it'll be starting at 1pm. And But apparently... Uh, so this is not detailed here. Apparently there will be some other sort of special kind of activities happening around. There are lots of activities mm-hmm. for kids especially, and it's, it's oh, more a family thing. And there will be a march yes. as well. Yeah, what's, what's, what's actually good is that this time around, the May Day falls on a Sunday. I know, for a change. For a cha- and for, uh, the May Day march is always held on a Sunday, <laughs> regardless of when mm. May, May the 1st is. Yes. So now we have May, May Day 1st on a Sunday. All, to, all events con- uh, sort of brought together there, so it should be, um, sh- should be an amazing day. I know. I think it's criminal that they actually abolished uh, May the 1st as a public holiday. They yes. moved it to Mumbai, didn't they? That was Canada. Oh, oh, 
Anyway, mm. that's another issue that frustrates me. But keep going. Yeah, Next so uh, on the topic of May Day, um, uh, Greenleaf Weekly and Social Alliance will be um, will have um, their May Day forum. Thirty years since the 1986 um, 1986 nurses strike, it will have Irene Bolger. Bolger. Bolger <laughs> is with the state secretary, Australian nursing uh, of the Australian Nursing Federation during the strike, and we'll have our very own Lalita. Um, he was an ANF organizer during the strike. We also have Gwyneth Evans. Gwyneth Evans, uh, who is an ANF health and safety officer during the strike, currently and who's currently meeting she. It'll be at, um, it'll be meal will be it'll be at the multicultural hub at 506 Elizabeth Street, opposite Victoria Markets. And it will um, start at 6.30 with a meal from 6 p.m. Yeah, it'll be exciting because no one's ever heard Irene speak about her own experiences firsthand. It's always been third-hand um, description or an interview or what the analysis of a thir- third person is. It is the first time Irene's going to talk about her own experiences, what she went through uh, and the attacks on her uh, because she led such a, such a internationally... A significant strike. So I'll be doing the international perspective. So it'll be something exciting to come to. And um, from May 5th to Thursday the 19th, of, um, well, from May 5th to the May 19th, though, um, the Human Rights and um, Arts and Film Festival will be running, which is an organisation that explores diverse and inspiring human stories through the mediums of film, art, music and forums. Um, the full prog- if you'll be able to find the full program bookings by searching up Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, and you should be able to find that out. Um, on Sunday, May 8th, um, there'll be Fearless Music, Top Musicians Sing and Play for Liberty. Liberty Austra- Victoria, Australia's oldest human rights group, is bringing together some of Melbourne's outstanding singers and musicians for a one-off show, Fearless Music. The show aims to support rights Liberty Victoria, uh, Liberty Victoria says have been lost by Australians and especially by refugees. It will be featuring Ross Wilson, Cash Savage, Stephen Kane, and it'll be at 3 p.m. Sunday the 8th of May at Memo Music Hall, 88 Ackland Street, St Kilda. This Tuesday, um, there's a number of events. There'll be a protest to support um, Jasmine um, Hillbrow, who's who on February February 2nd, 2015, she calmly and peacefully refused to take a seat on a Qantas flight in an effort to prevent the forced removal of Ron Will Asylum Seeker from Australia to oh yeah from Australia <laughs> to Sri Lanka. Going too fast. <laughs> um, more than a year later, she has been charged with interference. F- with a crew member of an yes. aircraft under the Civil um, Arbitration Act. She faces a maximum of $10,500 mm. $10, fine or two years imprisonment. Um, you can support Jasmine at a court appearance at 8.30 a.m. at the Broad Meadows Magistrates Court at Dimbola Road and Pierdarsingal uh, um, Parade, Broad Meadows. Okay, just a quick another 3CR announcement. Um, is We have a book launch at 3CR. And that is on the 6th of May at the Bella Union Bind Trades Hall at 6 p.m. It's book sales from 9th of May. So there will be a book launch about Radical Radio celebrating 40 years of 3CR. So those uh, people who are members should should turn up. And those who are not members, please join up and come to this this wonderful book launch. It'll be the history of 3CR in paper form that you can take away. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming back to the, uh, to the, to I just want to make one, one more announcement. One important announcement. Yeah. Um, just I don't really want to go on the show without making um, this quick announcement. But 
On the 13th of May to the 15th, um, there'll be the Socialism for the 21st Century Conference. Yes. It'll be um, in Sydney at the University of Sydney, and it'll be a three-day international conference on eco-socialism, applying Marxist today, and movements and people power. It'll f- feature speakers will include Martha Hanukkah, Michael Lipperis, Ian Angus, Sam Watson, and Rob Pine. Um, Queensland MP recently resigned from the MP. Website including registration um, and transport and accommodation info can be found at Socialism for the 21st Century. Dennis. Coming back to international news and more specifically uh, climate justice in international news. Over in Canada there's been some interesting developments uh, over there. uh, um, uh, Richard Fiddler uh, writes here. In a stunning rebuff to the party establishment, delegates at the Federal Convention of Canada's National uh, New Democratic Party voted to reject Thomas Molke as their leader. And that's um, j- just, to, uh, just, just to make this clear. Thomas Molke was, um, was the leader of the New Democratic Party in uh, Canada for, uh, for, for, a few, for a few years. Um, and the New Democratic Party uh, is the, sort of the social democratic party within Canada. As sort of because you have Canada's Liberal Party in charge now. And and uh, yes. conservatives Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau, yeah. Trudeau. Yes. And conservatives have been in charge there before, before for about 10 years when, with, their, with their own version of Tony Abbott running the country before. <laughs> Thank you. Dennis is very enlightening this time yes. of the morning. <laughs> yes, but, uh, but uh, what's been happening in the NDP itself has actually been uh, quite curious because mm. uh, so, the NDP suffered uh, a lot of losses in the last uh, Canadian uh, election. Yes. And a huge chunk of that has been attributed to the fact that NDP is actually moved to the right, to the right so much uh, under the leadership of Thomas uh, uh, Molke. Uh, even uh, even uh, sort of even the uh, uh, sort of the election manifesto of the, of the party seemed to be sort of moving more towards the, r- the right than the than Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. There, so his removal seems to p- pave the way for sort of more of a l- more left wing. Direction. I hope direction. so. Exactly. I hope so. And, more in, and uh, in particular, particularly the eco socialist, eco socialist movement within the, within the party itself. We all, we mentioned last week that there's also been the launch of the Leap Manifesto with Naomi Klein over in, uh, over in Canada. Well, this is this has also been um, helped to really shake up the uh, the NDP there. Yep. And the, the yes, Naomi Klein has stirred up a lot of um, sentiments in Canada, hasn't she? Yes. Very yes. strong international environmentalists, yep. Yes. Well, and the eco-socialist left, uh, so Richard Rice here, eco-socialist left might, uh, might well develop within and around the NDP. It's uh, a left with uh, supporters qualitatively more rooted in the communities than the uh, sort of other, uh, other socialist uh, groups there. So is, is Naomi Klein in that group? Or uh, is she separate? Sorry, no. Well, Naomi Klein doesn't associate with any political parties. Okay. So, but, but it's, uh, there seems to be like this, uh, this sort of um, new emerging caucus or emerging movement within the party itself. Yep. Yeah, which is uh, really good, really good to see. Because so mm. basically, basically, I feel like I would, uh, a lot of we we've been talking a lot about the United States. Yes. And, oh God. Yes. And, and sort of and sort of the rise of Bernie Sanders. Yes. So, uh, but we don't uh, nobody, uh, we don't really mention uh, Canada. Mm. It's something that qu- quite actually quite um, also also quite important because even though um, Canada has uh, left behind you know the uh, the ultra con- the old, it's ultra conservative uh, S- uh, Stephen Harper mm. 
uh, government. It still needs a proper uh, radical progressive uh, or revolutionary movement in its in its own right yes. to help uh, you know get rid of a lot of the a lot of the conservatism that's sort of that's kind of that's still there. And and if the NDP can can do that, it doesn't have a hard left movement in, in Canada, is it's, there? It's it's, a, it's it's been a very curious sort of uh, situation because the the NDP itself has for a long time been a, been a very left wing yeah. uh, party there. So if it manages to develop the strong eco-socialist current there, then perhaps it could then perhaps we, what we could also see we could also see a turn towards eco-socialism and towards you know seeing a, seeing a development of an eco-socialist policy. Yes, but then, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, Trudeau approved, is it it fracking or did he approve coal seam gas or, you know, it's recently and he was being criticized for that. Mm. He's uh, he's opposed the Keystone pipeline, which has been a really uh, prickly issue. And um, he has... Uh, he has also opposed the TTP, but I'm not, I haven't heard. Yeah, he, he did something silly like that. I, I, I can't remember the details off the top of my head at the moment, but there was a problem. But anyway, so Canada is on the boil, yeah? Yes, yes, Good, yes, good, uh, good, good. We need to keep up with that news. Okay, we are going to move on to the last interview for the morning. We are going to uh, have an interview with um, Associate Professor David McKenzie about homelessness. We have, on the 19th of May... A public meeting, Prospects for Real Social Change in Latin America Today. Uh, prolific writers and activists, Madhanaka and Michael Lebovich, who, uh, who will be in the country and in Melbourne, Exp- the experts on politics and society in, in Latin America, will speak about the prospects of radical social change in the region. It will be at 7 p.m., Metro West, 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray. So it will be in the western suburbs. Uh, it's Mara Hanaka and Michael Lebowitz. Lebowitz. Organized by the Community Identity Displacement Research Work, <coughs> excuse me, Victoria University. So that's on the 19th of May, which is the Thursday. Now on the 14th of May, which is a Saturday, <coughs> pardon me, um, there's a rally, Stand Up for Equal Pay. It is outrageous that the early childhood education educators earn a third less than those teaching and caring for children just a few weeks, a few years older. So this sector has been traditionally been very poorly paid. So we have a rally on um, at Treasury Gardens for a barbecue and lunch. There will be children's activities and um, and entertainment. 11 a.m. City Square, 67 Swanson Street is hosted by Big Steps Campaign and United Voice. So let's see if we can get Professor McKenzie on the line again. Good morning, Professor McKenzie. Good morning. Sorry, there was a bit of a technical uh, (laughs) 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 mix-up. Thank you for for agreeing to talk to Tricia. I believe you all had a seminar yesterday about youth homelessness. Yes, we had a a, a launch of the final findings of the five-year research project and... uh, sort of a press conference where we, uh, we announced what we'd found and uh, talked about what government should do about it. Yeah. Could you um, tell us about sort of like some of the specific kind of findings of this program? Okay. So what we set out to do, we, we, we were concerned that when people suffer the terrible sort of experience of homelessness, that there are massive social costs. There's personal costs to, to, to young people because it was a study of young people. But there's also large social costs. 
and governments have not really paid attention to the bigger picture on this. They've had a very unsophisticated approach. I mean, we have quite good harness of services developed in Australia as compared to, say, the United States or other countries. But So we, we, we um, interviewed over three years um, 400 young people, uh, 300 homeless young people and another 100 disadvantaged young people, very grateful for their participation in the study. We asked them a whole lot of questions about their experiences and particularly their use of services. You know, how many times have you been to hospital? How many times have you ever been stopped by the police? How many times did this happen? Did that happen? And we then worked out what the costs of those services in health and justice were. And we were bowled over mm. by, by the finding. And what we found was that when you total it up uh, together, it's about, on average, $15,000 per mm. person per year. Mm. And when you total that up to the total cost, it's $626 million every year, mm. which is more than the total cost of what governments spend on homelessness services. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> so there's some things they need to pay attention to. Yes. Um, firstly, they need to act and invest uh, to prevent young people becoming homeless in the first place. That's right. They've not done that. There's mm. been talk about that. Early intervention is not a new idea. It's been around since the mid-90s. I and others have advocated for it. In fact, when the Rudd government uh, tabled its white paper, early intervention was one of the highlighted strategic policies that were going to be followed, you know, turning off the tap, a very apt kind of term. Uh, some things happened after that white paper. There was uh, some investment in social housing uh, uh, during the global financial crisis. There was some repair of the homelessness service system and a number of innovative things. But there was no early intervention. There was nothing put into early intervention. Mm. Um, as we know, the government changed in 2013 and uh, the then minister, who wasn't there for long, uh, Kevin Andrews, um, convened a roundtable and... Uh, with a few experts and, and, and sector leaders, and I was actually one of the people who was invited to the roundtable at Parliament House, and he tabled a framework for prevention and early intervention across all the services, and, you know, we all gave it a tick and said, this is fantastic. Mm. This is really, you know, I was a bit surprised, but uh, we were very <laughs> pleased that this uh, framework was, was uh, presumably going to be put in place. Nothing was done about it. So that tap in 2008 has been running and flooding the house since... You know, eight years, nothing yes. done. So we do need to, to invest in early intervention, and there's some very promising and innovative ways that we could do that. Um, particularly, um, there's a model called the Community of Schools and Services model, which focuses on local communities, bringing everybody together through a process of community development, having the services working closely with the schools, population screening for risk in, a, in a, an appropriate and unobtrusive sort of way, so that... You know, disadvantaged young people and families uh, get the help they need when they need it over the duration of school. So, you know, these young people, even though there may be very difficult things happening, as, as happening in Geelong with the closing of factories and so yes, on, yes. at least the children can, can continue through education. They need a bit of help to do that. That's right. So that's called a collective impact approach, and there's some promising sites and some interest around the country, and we're hoping that that sort of reform, and it does require reform, what we tend to do with services, uh, we tend to throw money at a crisis problem. And so we have a whole system of crisis services. Yes. Um, 
course you need to respond to crises, but it's much smarter and more effective and better for people to actually respond before crises occur and to help them before, you know, everything hits the fan, so to speak. Uh, and, of course, the, at the other end, at the downstream end, um, we need to get people out of young people out of homelessness as quickly as possible. We're not very good at doing that. Mm. Um, there's an affordable housing crisis in Australia, as That's everyone right. knows. Keep we read about it every day. Um, but young people need um, not only ready access and rapid access to housing, but you know many of them are, are not ready to kind of take on the responsibilities of uh, running a household or even running themselves entirely. So we need you know youth appropriate. Um, they need many of them need wraparound kind of support that families provide. Mm. Um, until they're ready to go out to the world themselves. So we have uh, the Australian foyers, which are promising, a little bit expensive, but at least a promising model. Um, and in all of these initiatives, right across the board, we do need to make sure that young people are connected and engaged in education and training and on pathways to employment. Yes, one of the things that, that, that I think politicians don't seem to understand is that the frontal lobe of uh, young people don't completely develop till they're 25, and that's a decision-making make, part of the brain from what I understand as a nurse. And yet, we, you know, at the age of 18, kids um, seem to be turfed out of home and they're treated as adults. Yes, they can vote, but they're not. They're young adults still experimenting, still learning about life. And to become homeless any time, you know, in, in the youth, never mind 18, it's, it's so risky for them to be, to be thrown onto the streets. And there's so many homeless people I've seen sitting under the bridge along South Bank and also along the, the main streets of Melbourne. It's, it's just heartbreaking to watch them. Look, you're, you're quite right. I mean... Uh, during adolescence, it is the plastic period That's for, right. for intellectual and mental development. Um, many young people become homeless when they're sort of 17 and 18 mm. as teenagers. And homelessness is not just sleeping on the streets for years and years and years. That's generally not what the experience is. But it's not having a home yeah. and couch surfing and floating around. And it's, a, it's an unhealthy kind of situation to be in. Um, and about two-thirds of young people who are homeless are sort of early school leavers. Um, if you're an early school leaver, there's many more early school leavers than those who become homeless. Um, but if you're an early school leaver, you're much more likely to become homeless at some stage in your life. And yes. 250,000 men, women and children uh, seek help from homelessness services in mm-hmm. Australia. I mean, that's just... Hmm. Yeah, I have, a, I have a sort of question um, about your research. Um, considering um, the fact um, that um, LGBTI youth are disproportionately... Um, you, um, homeless compared to, you know, straight. How does sort of your research kind of address that kind of problem? Well, we, we, we've got it. We, we haven't addressed it in our analysis as yet, but we do have a capacity to drill down into this data. It's, it's probably the richest data source on, on, on homeless youth uh, that anyone's collected anywhere in the world. And we're able to kind of follow through uh, what happens longitudinally over the three-year period. Mm. Um, so we will be doing these sort of analyses um, to kind of pull out particularly um, uh, that group and also young people that have been in out-of-home care. We're going to look at their experiences and, and trajectories uh, as compared to some of the others. So we certainly that, watch this space. Um, that's mm, going that's to be good. highlighted. We, one of the things we need to do in policy is we need to make sure that the highest-risk groups get help so they don't become a high-risk group. That's right. And one last and a quick question, we're almost out of time, that always bothers me because it's my area of work as well, the connection between homelessness and family violence. 
Did you guys find that to be a prominent feature or not? Oh, absolutely. Um, and we know from the Royal Commission that uh, family violence in, uh, in, in homes certainly leads uh, uh, partners with children to, to flee that situation, but it also leads many young people. Family violence is, in uh, uh, I think, seven out of ten cases, the prime driver of them becoming homeless. You don't, you don't leave home and become homeless for, for trivial reasons. Exactly. It's always something quite serious, and, and family violence is at the very centre of it, and we need to... I mean, we know that, and uh, it's, it's good that we're now starting to see some things done, uh, hopefully done, about family violence. It needs to be a national campaign and a national agenda mm. uh, for us all, I think. Great to have you on board, um, no, Professor you. McKenzie, and thank you for your time. Sorry about the glitches before. And uh, hopefully we'll, as you said, we'll watch the space. Right. Thank Thanks you. for that. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <clears throat> we are end of the program, and let's round up by saying thanks to Shani from Greenpeace and uh, Anjum from uh, the Kashmiri Group, and of course Professor McKenzie, um, and Dennis who's left for his uni, and uh, Jacob. Yeah. Let's say goodbye to listeners, and we have Beyond Zero waiting at the door. Yeah, goodbye. One so thank you, listeners, and goodbye. And thank you, listeners. <laughs> yeah.